This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, February 23rd. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Telluride School District receives swatting threats. San Miguel County looks for input on East End Master Plan. Avalanche class opens up new terrain. And a mountain weather forecast. Schools across Colorado went into lockdown on Wednesday after a series of swatting calls. Yesterday morning, we got alerted from our dispatch through the FBI that there was a series of swatting calls of active shooters throughout the state. I think that at that point, there may have been five or six schools, mostly on the front range, that had been targeted in this, in this instance. So they were just kind of giving us an alert that this was happening, it was possible to happen. That's Telluride Chief Marshal Josh Compt. Swatting is when an individual makes a fake call about an active shooter or incident. Initially started the attempts of trying to get a SWAT team to go to a person's house, um, you know, knock on a door, bang the door down, whatever it was, um, for a whole host of reasons. And it's kind of now happening, you're seeing with these fake active shooter threats because they know it's going to generate a significant police response, cause significant panic in a community for understandable reasons. On Wednesday afternoon, local dispatch received a swatting call regarding the Telluride School District. The call yesterday came out again as a, of an active shooter. Initially, when dispatch is hearing it, we got to treat every call that comes in like that as it's a serious threat until we can determine that it's not. Um, having the background information that we knew these types of calls were going on, they are all fit the same pattern. The calls are the same. It sounds like the recordings are the same. Um, and again, knowing that we didn't have school in session, it, it kind of tampered our fears quite a bit, but we still responded. After responding to the call, Comp says the marshal's office determined the threat was not credible. Typically, according to Compt, an active shooter call would elicit a full response from the marshal's office and surrounding agencies. With Telluride School District out of session on Wednesday due to a snow day, Comp notes the response wasn't as severe. Knowing that school wasn't in session and that we had that background information, so we didn't roll everybody as we normally would, but we still sent a response to check on our schools just to, just to make sure. Comp says they don't know why the Telluride School District or any across Colorado were targeted, but the calls could have originated from overseas. Both Compt and Telluride School District Superintendent John Pandolfo note, while the call on Wednesday did not force a lockdown, the incident is a reminder to prepare and think through the worst-case scenario. These are conversations that we have all year round. Like We're constantly meeting with our law enforcement partners, the fire department, and school officials to do tabletops, talk about training, how we can improve. So we'll use yesterday's events and kind of lessons learned from those schools in the front range that responded not knowing that these were swatting calls early on and how they went through their process. It helps us to say, okay, we have to make sure we are, um, you know, on top of this and how would exactly what happened yesterday impact or change anything we're doing in our planning. And I don't think that it would, but it's like a lot of things where I feel like, like anything else, um, we're as ready for it as we can be, yet it never feels like we're as ready as we want to be. Compt adds he understands the fear for families, even if the threat isn't credible, but says local law enforcement and first responders are prepared as best they can to respond. My children go to this school as well, so I mean, when we hear these calls come out, the as a parent, the same panic and fear hits hits myself as well. So, um, you know, I, I have absolute trust and confidence in our school resource officer, the school officials here to do the right thing if there was ever an incident. Um, confident that our marshal's department as well as our surrounding agencies will respond appropriately and do everything we could to safeguard the lives of the, the children here.
The Telluride School District was one of roughly a dozen across the state to receive active shooter calls on Wednesday, including Aspen, Boulder, Denver, and Durango. In a statement, the Federal Bureau of Investigation said there is no indication any of the calls were credible threats. San Miguel County is working to update its East End Master Plan, and it's looking for input from the public. A master plan is a guiding document for uh, the community. You know, it's not only to plan land use, but also to look at um, what we want the place to be, what our vision is. That's Kay Simonson, Planning Director for San Miguel County. The current East End Master Plan was adopted in 1989. Simonson says the county is, quote, woefully behind when it comes to an update. The old plan was very um, Telluride region-centric. It was really focused on the developed areas. And as things have evolved, there have become a there have been a lot more issues that have come up that need to be addressed, a lot more things that we're concerned about now, um, you know, things like climate um, and, you know, transportation doesn't stop at the planned boundary limits. So we're looking to expand it to the east end, which is roughly um, Trout Lake over the Ilium Valley over to Deep Creek, um, and everything eastward. The county created a survey for members of the community to give their input on the future of the plan and the region. Simonson notes it's one piece of a multi-step process to develop the final draft. We've had meetings with focus groups talking about various topics. Uh, we had our pop-up events where the public was invited to uh, talk to us and identify uh, things uh, related to certain topics. And uh, this is the next step where we're asking people to uh, tell us what they think about certain topics, um, what's important to them, what we need to be addressing in the plan, um, and, uh, you know, giving us some guidance so that we can uh, move it along um, as we start uh, actually drafting the plan. Simonson acknowledges it's a long survey, asking questions on topics like housing, community culture, transportation, the environment, and sustainability. But she says it's vital to get input from those who live here. Ultimately, we want to represent the, the voice of the community. This is the community's vision. It's not the Planning Commission's vision. It's not, you know, the County Planning Commission or Board of County Commissioners' vision. We really do want to know what the vision is from the community, and what's important to the community. Recognizing that there are some divergent opinions. Um, so we will be working through um, trying to kind of synthesize everything and coming up with those things that really matter the most. The San Miguel County East End Master Plan Community Survey is available at sanmiguelcountyco.gov slash Plan. The survey is available in English and Spanish through Friday, March 3rd. Conditions are forbidding this Sunday morning in Ophir. The wind is setting off small cyclones of snow along the roadside, and at the end of the Box Canyon, the pale cover of cloud makes it difficult to tell where the mountains end and the sky begins. 
But inside the town hall, a dozen skiers, undaunted, are planning their day's backcountry tour. Projected on a TV screen are different maps of the Ofer Basin, marking potential avalanche terrain, and crossed over with possible paths for skinning up through the snow. It's the third and final day of an Avalanche One course taught through a collaboration between the Silverton Avalanche School and the Guiding Service Mountain Trip. Many here are first-time backcountry skiers. Student Nick Crosby says he was drawn to the sport, but took the class so he could enter the backcountry more prepared. Yeah, I grew up skiing. I was always on resorts or whatnot, and then realizing, you know, you can combine, like, the fun of just getting out, you know, into the kind of off-piece stuff that you do in the summer, but still get to ski, and it's even better skiing. I uh, really lit up just kind of something inside me. Like, I saw this as a prerequisite before I entered the backcountry, kind of laying the foundation now so I can go out and enjoy it, you know, later this season and seasons to come. Dylan May adds the class has been a way of getting a baseline of information before entering potentially dangerous terrain. Really what this class does is it, it doesn't, like, give you access to the gnarliest terrain out there. It doesn't bar you from getting hurt in any way. It just gives you the tools to make the right decisions um, about where you go and when you go. Course instructor and avalanche educator with Mountain Trip, Chris Dixon, says interest in backcountry exploded in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was largely due to the ski resorts all closing. But that happened in March, and there was still a lot of snow left on the slopes. And so people realized, hey, I still want to go skiing. There's plenty of winter left. Well, how do I do that? Oh, I get a, an uphill backcountry setup that allows me to walk uphill and then ski back down. Now, three years later, that interest is held strong. Dixon says newcomers are reviving the backcountry tradition. And, you know, backcountry skiing used to be a thing that I think a small minority group of predominantly white men used to do in the, you know, 60s and 70s. And that came from the history of World War II and, you know, the 10th Mountain Division and all that. But it's evolved into a sport that is kind of all-encompassing and it's growing really rapidly, similar into the way that climbing has. And if you choose to ski an avalanche terrain, you know, it's important to acknowledge that your hobby, your leisure activity is potentially dangerous and deadly. Um, and so that's where my job comes in, trying to help people stay safe. On the topic of risk, student Indica Young says she was aware of the danger posed by the backcountry when she turned to the avalanche class for guidance. I feel equally as nervous about like the terrain and the conditions out there, but I feel like I know when it might be okay to step out and when I should really focus on like, you know, maybe skiing the resort or like doing other things on a day that's like has really high avalanche danger. The tools Young speaks of are extensive, ranging from shovels and probes to radios, mapping software, transceivers, and other technology that can be used to collect information from different groups of skiers and allow skiers to communicate when they're out in the field. Dixon says all this can be overwhelming, but students usually catch on quickly. It's awesome to see the progression from someone on day one and their level of understanding. And then in, on day three, you know, we go out on a full day tour and to see them in action, you know, setting the skin track, making decisions, making observations, talking the talk. And there's a lot of jargon involved in snow and avalanche world. Um, it's pretty amazing the amount of growth that can happen in just a three day course. Um, so that's pretty cool. And I think people in general walk away thinking, wow, I got a ton of new information and I learned a lot. 
and sometimes that can almost be too much information, but uh, inevitably it leads to a good foundation that they can build on from there on. Student Molly Tice agrees. The class, she said, has made her feel both more independent and closer to the growing backcountry community. Especially here, it's a really scary and can be daunting thing, but I'm excited to like be able to make my own decisions. And knowledge is power. I think excited to have taken... Um, it into my own hands and yeah know what to do on my own and be able to contribute and be more of a asset instead of a liability. As this is day three of the course students gear up for their backcountry tour and head out into the wind towards new terrain and maybe even some fresh tracks. A group of community members sitting as a town council holds a lot of power. From public health to housing, business licenses to open space, town council can have a large impact on your day-to-day -day life. Mountain Village is looking for candidates to run in its upcoming town council election. According to Mountain Village officials, they're looking for individuals who are registered voters and have maintained legal residence in Mountain Village from February 27, 2023 until June 27, when the election takes place. They're looking for residents with a desire to serve the community and help make a difference. In order to help interested individuals learn more about running and serving on town council, Mountain Village will hold two information sessions on Monday, March 6th from 6 to 7 p.m. and Thursday, March 16th from noon to 1 p.m. at Mountain Village Town Hall. To run for a seat on town council, individuals must submit a letter of intent and candidate biographical form to mvclerk at mtnvillage.org by 5 p.m. on May 12th. The Mountain Village Town Council election will be held on June 27th, 2023. Telluride Gay Ski Week is officially kicking off this weekend. The week of festivities will feature group skiing, fashion show pop-ups, yoga, daily opera ski and dance parties, including a white party with DJ Matt Suave and an off-white party with Castle. Margaret Cho will headline a night of comedy on Wednesday, March 1st. There will also be a burlesque and drag show featuring epic drag queens and the local House of Shimmy Shake. And there's two chances for... It's brunch bitch, drag brunch performances. Throughout the week, there will be a window dressing contest for local businesses to show their gay pride and paint the town rainbow. Telluride Gay Ski Week runs from Saturday, February 25th through Saturday, March 4th. A daily Gay Ski Week schedule is available at telluridegayski.com. Water levels in Lake Powell dropped to an all-time low last week, falling past a previous record set last April. The nation's second-largest reservoir is shrinking from the effects of climate change and steady demand. If water levels keep dropping, they could get too low to generate hydropower in Glen Canyon Dam or even pass through the dam at all. Eric Balkin is with the conservation group Glen Canyon Institute. I think... Decision makers are trying so hard to prop up Lake Powell because they're really afraid of the infrastructure problems at the dam when it operates below power pool. States that use water from the Colorado River have come up with a patchwork of measures to prop up Lake Powell in recent years, but they've been unable to agree on long-term plans to cut back on water use.
lawmakers are trying to change how Colorado's criminal justice system deals with pregnant people. As KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reports, a new bill proposes alternatives to putting them behind bars. The bill would allow courts to consider sentences other than jail time for defendants who are pregnant or who have recently given birth. That could mean a diverted sentence, a deferred judgment, or an unaccompanied furlough. Representative Jennifer Bacon is one of the bill's sponsors. She says punishments can't be at the expense of someone's health. Postpartum is real. Uh, The effects of pregnancy are real. It is a medical condition, and we feel like it should be treated as such and with the respect that it deserves. And that is really what we're putting on the table here. If a pregnant defendant breaks their sentencing conditions, the measure would authorize their rearrest or additional sentencing. The bill would also require officials to give pregnancy tests to people in custody if one is requested, and defendants' pregnancy information would have to be kept confidential. The bill was approved by the House Judiciary Committee and will undergo a fiscal review next. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at the State Capitol. A new federal grant program will subsidize clean energy projects on tribal lands. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD looks into what kind of projects the program might support in the Four Corners region. In January, the U.S. Department of Energy announced $50 million in funding support for tribal clean energy projects. These grants will range from $100,000 to $2 million. They'll fund projects like bringing electricity to tribal government buildings that need it and community-scale energy-generating systems. One way this grant program could make a difference in the Four Corners region is with solar projects. Glenn Steiger is an executive consultant at Navajo Tribal Utility Authority, which oversees a number of solar projects in the Navajo Nation. He says subsidies make a difference when it comes to solar projects. At any time during the construction of the plant, if we find that we could have grants or subsidies, that's going to reduce the overall cost to us of the plant and certainly have a beneficial impact on the cost per megawatt hour, let's say, to whomever we might be selling output to. $2 million in funding might seem like a lot, but it won't kickstart a utility-scale solar project. The Navajo Utility Authority's Kayenta Solar Project provides 55 megawatts of solar power to Navajo homes and businesses. But the cost of Kayenta was over $100 million. 70% of that or around $70 million, came from federal funding. So program grants of $100,000 to $2 million aren't going to fund projects like these. Doesn't seem like a lot of money to me. Mike Eisenfeld, energy manager at San Juan Citizens Alliance, agrees. But it seems like that's not a lot of money in terms of clean energy projects and the capital needed to, to, to get a project off the ground. The hydrogen hub concept that the state of New Mexico is pursuing with three other states I believe that that was like $1.25 billion. When it comes to the economics of clean energy, these grants from the Department of Energy are more likely to help small-scale projects, like a solar array for a municipal building. Scott Clough, an environmental programs director for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, is hopeful the tribe can secure one of these grants for a hydro project. A hydroelectric project on the, on the Toyok Highline Canal, and that's just north of town here. And we've been considering and doing some negotiation on this project for for over 10 years. That is a scale of project that, yeah, the Department of Energy funding would match with pretty well. 
Hydropower in Toyak, yes, believe it or not. By 2024, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe will have 10 hydropower plants, capturing energy from pipes that drop 220 feet from the Toyak Highline Canal. These plants will generate an estimated 18 kilowatts of energy. The total cost of the project will be 5 to $6 million. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight with wind gusts as high as 50 miles per hour. The low is around 15 degrees, with 2 to 4 inches of snow accumulation possible. Friday, there's a 60% chance of snow showers with wind gusts as high as 35 miles per hour and a high near 30 degrees. Friday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 20. Saturday, expect partly sunny skies during the day and partly cloudy skies at night with a chance of snow showers. The high is in the mid-40s with a low around 25 degrees. This has been the news for Thursday, February 23rd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hello, this is Lee Shea Benton at Coto Radio with George Greenbank, a long-term resident and community activist. The River Dam Plan is being created with ideas to improve the River Park Trail, Beaver Park Dam, parking and the park entrance, and river restoration working with the beavers. Please support this effort with your comments on the draft of the River Dam Plan being circulated and discussed this spring by the beaver collaborators and supporters. Thank you, and here is George Greenbank. To work like a beaver is almost universal expression for energetic and intelligent persistence. But who realizes the magnitude of the beaver's work? What they have accomplished is not only monumental, but useful to man. Beavers were the original conservationist. The beaver is intimately associated with the natural resources, soil, and water. Their work is not yet done along the source of innumerable rivers there will ever be a need to save soil, to regulate steam flow, and to provide pools for the fish. The beaver conservation work is accomplished by means of dams constructed in the streams of flowing water and the ponds that are thus formed. These dams and ponds render a number of services. First, they save the soil. Second, they check erosion. Third, they reduce flood damage. Fourth, they store water and help to sustain stream flow. Fifth, they provide water holes for fish. Sixth, they are helpful in maintaining deep waterways by reducing the extremes of both high and low water, and also by reducing the quantity of sediment carried down into the river channels. A live beaver is more valuable to mankind than a dead one. The beaver may be exterminated, but if protected, they would multiply and colonize stream sources. Here they would practice conservation. Their presence would reduce river erosion and make the rivers more manageable and useful and attractive. It would pay us to keep beaver colonies. Beavers would help keep America beautiful. A beaver colony gives a touch of romance 
and a rare charm to the outdoors. The works of the beaver have ever intensely interested the human mind. Beaver's work may do far more good than we realize. Children, what books, sermons, companions, and even homes sometimes fail to do, develop the power to think. No boy or girl can become intimately acquainted with the ways and works of these primitive folk without having the eyes of observation opened and acquiring a permanent interest in the wild world in which we live. These words have been from Enos Mills, book In Beaver World, published in 1913. And it is part of the public domain, and you can use it as you will. Thank you for your support. Bye-bye. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.